I want to invite you to Daniel chapter 8 uh, tonight, as, or this morning. As I've already preached once, so it's already night. I don't even know what time of day it is. Uh, but Daniel chapter 8. And you know, honestly, as, as I was thinking about preaching this morning, and I was thinking about this message, and it's a little different. There's a lot of a lot of history today. So if you're not a history buff, I'll try not to lose you. Uh, but uh, it's important that we see some of the history that uh, has been played out as we see Daniel's vision here in Daniel chapter 8. Because as we see that history played out, we see God's Word revealed for what it is, truth. We see it revealed for inspired Word of God. We see that we can trust it and put our confidence in it. And I just want to encourage you that, uh, that there is a great application we can make in our life that we will do to that as well today. But there is going to be some time of uh, just historical study we, as we look at uh, the Israel, Israelite history. Now, we all have go through different things. And as we look at history, sometimes we, we step back and we see, uh, well, look at David and Goliath, for instance, and you look at David's life and you see the tragedy of Goliath, but we also see the triumph of victory on the other side of the Valley of Elah. And it's easy to look at that and say, man, what a great thing that God did in this moment. It's easy to see the triumph in that tragedy. But when we're going through something that's right here and right now, and we're going through a tragedy in our life, it's not always easy to see the triumph that God brings about. It's not always easy to see how God's going to work in this situation for our good and His glory. And yet, for some reason, as we, uh, as we uh, just look at the past, we don't always, are, are not always able to apply it to our present circumstances. And so as we look at this vision that Daniel has shared today, my hope and prayer is that we will see that, that God shows us that we can have triumph in our tragedy. No matter what the life, what life may bring, no matter how you voted Tuesday and the outcomes that you expected and hoped for, whether they manifested or not, is irrelevant. What I see that is God is at work and He's still on the throne. I want to share with you a story that really touched my life as I read it. And I want to encourage you to, uh, to read the story yourself written by a pastor named Chris Edmonds, uh, and it's in the book entitled No Surrender, about his father. His father was Roddy. Roddy was a, uh, a, a master sergeant in the 106th Infantry uh, and during WW2, and he was in one of the last battles of WW2. They, all the Allied forces were racing to get to Germany uh, as fast as they could, and, and they had sent their forces, the 106th, into uh, this, this mountain. And I forgive me, I don't remember the name of it, but as they went into this mountain, it was the very the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge. Roddy and his company found themselves captured by the Germans on that fateful day. They were taken to a POW camp, and, and there they were treated terribly, but Roddy found himself as one of the uh, main uh, officers that were there. He was the only officer, as a matter of fact, in the camp. One tragic day, as the Nazis had warned Roddy, he, they kept telling him, we're going to want the Jews. We're going to want all the Jews out of... Out of, your, uh, out of the American army, and we want them, we're going to take them to a special camp. In other words, they were going to take them and slaughter them. And so Roddy, he was praying. He said, Lord, how can I help uh, my, my brothers? How can I help these men not, uh, and not have to be separated from us and go through that, that future and go through that tragedy in their life? And so Roddy, just well, being a believer, he was sent, uh, seen spent, spending lots of time in prayer and seen, was spending time writing in his journal and seen, uh, just reading God's Word and just spending a lot of time together. And Roddy, this is his picture here, just an ordinary-looking guy, and, and Roddy, as he uh, just prayed and sought the Lord, the Lord gave him an answer how he could help save the Jews. 
And so he gathered together the men and he said, listen, I've got a plan. Pretty soon the Nazis are going to call for all the Jews to come out. And he, I, and he said, when that call comes, we will all go. Not one man. We're not going to leave one man in the bunk. Who's in, uh, we're not going to leave a man in the infirmary. We're not going to leave any man anywhere. We're all going to stand before these Germans and proclaim to be Jews. And so these men, they prepared for that day. And as they got up that day and, they, and the Nazis uh, sounded the bugle, they were supposed to be the Jews that came out of the barracks that day, only the Jews. But every single American soldier was, uh, marched out of the barracks and stood at attention before the Germans. And that fateful day as they stood there, the, the Nazis began to scream and yell and, and to demand to have only the Jews. They said, we know you're not all Jews. We only want the Jews. Everyone else go back to your barracks. And, and for an extended period of time as they stood out there in the cold, they demanded for the Jews. And finally they went to Roddy, who was the, the leading officer of that group. And he, uh, one of the Nazis got in his face and began to yell at him and demand for the Jews. And at one point in his frustration, he pulled out his pistol and stuck it to his head and said, Give me the Jews or I will kill you. Give me the Jews. And Roddy calmly said, We are all Jews. Roddy spoke as a senior officer, and he prayed that no one would break ranks in that moment. You know what I mean? And he was just praying that all of these men would stand there beside him. None of them would say, I know who the Jews are. And as he stood there with a gun to his forehead, he stood there in this moment. I believe that could have been very tragic, but God brought triumph in this moment. And instead of pulling the trigger, the, the, the soldier, uh, the Nazi put the gun back in his holster and he stormed off. And the men were spared. We'd have never known this story. Roddy was an ordinary guy. Matter of fact, his son never knew this story. His son was Chris Edmonds. He later became a pastor. And, and he never knew anything about his dad until after his dad died. He didn't know that he was in a POW camp. He didn't know that he was, uh, that he was captured. He didn't know anything about his dad. His dad just took it and compartmentalized it and he, he put it away. Many of our soldiers have done the same. But through this tragedy, God brought triumph. And God allowed us to see this, this, uh, His work in this situation. And I'm just so reminded of, of just the value of seeing God at work in the midst of tragedy and that God brings triumph even through tragedy. And sometimes we think, Pastor, you don't understand. I'm going through this and it's been this kind of a week and I've, I've experienced these things. And let me just say that, that, listen, sometimes in the midst of it, we can't always see how God's going to work it out. Can you imagine Roddy being able to know for sure that he wasn't going to be found in the bottom of a grave? But instead, God gave him victory that day. Daniel gives us a glimpse into Gentile history. And as the first, and from chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 7, he, all of this is written in the common language of Aramaic of the day. It was the trade language. It was the, the language of the Gentiles. And he points to the time of the Gentiles. And it's, we've, we've studied that between Nebuchadnezzar's vision, between Daniel's vision in chapter 7. And now as we come into Daniel chapter 8, we find that Daniel has, has yet another vision from God. And God is planning to use these Gentile nations to bring to fulfillment His perfect plan. Listen, God is at work in Daniel 8. And God reveals Himself mighty through these visions. And God demonstrates and says, Listen, let me show you that I am still God in all of this. And so let's read some of this together. 
And as we read the first 12 verses, you may look at me and think I'm crazy with that kind of introduction, but I hope that you'll, you'll come along with me as we share with you the end of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that it was at, I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Uliai. And then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before a river a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, and he goats came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes, and he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river. And ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram. And he was moved with collar against him. And smote the ram. And brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground. And stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great. And when he was strong and the great horn was broken, for it came up uh, four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed great, exceeding great, toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it, uh, did, and it cast down some to the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Let's stop and pray. Fathers, we look at this vision you've given Daniel. There's no doubt, Lord, um, it's, it can be at times, Lord, just, just bumfuzzling, honestly, to see how you work all of this out and how you would work it out. But God, as we've seen, Lord, through history, we see how that you have worked and manifested yourself mighty even through these prophecies of Daniel chapter 8 and the incredible truths that you have preserved and displayed for us, Lord, are here mighty on display to demonstrate yourself mighty in power and strength and wisdom and honor today. And so as we bow before you and we begin the message today, I just pray that the Holy Spirit of God would convict our hearts of a couple of truths, and primarily that you are God and we can trust your word. Secondly, I pray, Father, that you would uh, just spur us, Lord, to action as a result, just as you did to Daniel in his life. And that, God, as we see the truth of your word just played out and laid out here, may you help us, Lord, to be united uh, with this desire and this yearning to continue forward for the cause of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being God. Thank you for building up and casting down. Lord, thank you for how that you've worked and you've been faithful. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
And Daniel 8 uh, is no, no doubt many of you may say, well, I've read this before, maybe in my Bible reading, but maybe there's, you didn't fully uh, grasp all, everything that was going on. And I hope that after today you make some notes in your Bible, some highlights or whatever, you can kind of catch up with us and see where we're at in Daniel 8. And if you missed any of the previous messages on, on Daniel 1 through 7, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of those on podcast or uh, through Facebook Live. And so as we look here, Daniel uh, is, is not necessarily laid out in chronological order. I don't know if you knew this or not. And Daniel chapter 8 is actually before, given to Daniel before Daniel chapter 5. Now, if you remember, Daniel chapter 5 was when uh, King Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall as he was there feasting in his tabernacle or feasting in his, uh, in his, uh, in his temple there uh, with all those thousands of princes. He, he was, uh, saw the handwriting of God come down and write on the wall. Daniel was summoned to come in and interpret that handwriting. But before that happened, Daniel saw this vision. This vision of what would happen and the destruction of not only Babylon, but Persia and even Greek, Greece. And we see all of these things laid out. And, and Daniel, even before he interpreted the handwriting, knew what was to come. Because God had revealed it to him. The handwriting simply revealed to Daniel the timing of that first, uh, that first thing. And it also corresponds beautifully with Daniel chapter 2. I love that God is, just works in His Word so, so beautifully, how that He's consistent from one to the next to the next. From Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel's dreams, all, all of these visions that God has worked and just demonstrated his, Himself able to be consistent in everything. We can trust God's Word, folks, and we can believe it. And so as we read this vision, we're offered a couple of circumstances here that may look tragic, but are working to reveal God mighty through it all. God uses the Medes, God uses the Persians, the Greeks, even the Romans to prepare for the Messiah and our salvation that we enjoy today. And that's what he demonstrates here in Daniel chapter 8. And so there's three characters we're going to look at, the ram, the he-goats, and the little horn. And so let's begin with the realm. In verses number 1 and 2, we kind of have the setting of what's going on, as I shared with you a little bit there. In verse number 3, we really begin to see uh, a little bit about the realm, uh, the realm there. And as Daniel began this vision, God has transported him to the future, future capital of Persia. Uh, this is Shushan. And, and so this is a, at the time of the vision. This wouldn't be a spectacular city, but God was demonstrating once again that this is going to be the center of, of commerce, is going to be the center of the world once uh, in the next empire. And so Daniel chapter number 8 in verses 3 and 4, though he reveals uh, the ram, and then chapter 8 in verse number 20, we see the angel Gabriel reveals the interpretation. So let's look at verse 3. It says, And I lifted up mine eyes, and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. So there's the first picture. In verse number 20, I want you to look there with me. It says, The realm which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that God's revealed that the realm is Media and Persia. And the two horns represent the kingdom of Mede and the, and the Media and the kingdom of Persia. And both of these are represented by this realm. And Persia was the mighty, was mightier of the two nations. And Persia eventually dominated media, and, but, uh, but we, and then we see that in the longer horn than the other. But after the fall of Babylon, we see that the Medes stepped in and were joined with, by the Persians. And God uses this, uh, uh, this king, this country, in a great way. You say, how could it be great if the, the, uh, if the Jews are in captivity? Well, let me demonstrate something. If you look in the book of Ezra, it was King Cyrus that decreed 
that they could go and rebuild the temple of God using Persian money. Isn't that cool? God said, God used this Persian king to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. God used these, this circumstance, this tragedy, for His good and His triumph. And so we see that God is at work. Now, I want to move quickly because I went a little long in the last service, and I want to just kind of move to the next as we go here in verse number 5, and we see the goat that's revealed. And we'll spend a little bit more time here. In verse 5, he says, And I was considering, and behold, an he-goat came from the west. And so there's five prophecies here that, that uh, God reveals and that history allows us to be fulfilled. Okay, And this is where we're going to share a little bit of history with you. And the first is the Greek goat, if you will. The goat represents the country of Greece. And if you look in verse number 21 in Daniel chapter 8, it says, And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And so we see here that this is uh, the country of Greece and the next nation to, over, to, to come into power. Remember in Nebuchadnezzar's tower, it would have been that, that, uh, that country of bronze would have come to power was that of Greece. The goat represents Greece. And, the, and as we look at this, we see that the goat began to expand its holdings and to cover the whole earth. Now, notice a couple of things. We've, we've reviewed a little bit of this in the previous visions, but notice what he says about this goat. And I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. I want you to see this next uh, slide here, maybe. Yes, okay, so right here, this is a map of all the land that Alexander the Great conquered during his, his time as king. And you can see that it moved from west to east, and this, this great army that was led by this, uh, as the Bible calls it, this horn, uh, we see that God used in a, in a mighty way. He conquered all of this landmass in the, in the space of 12 years. Twelve years is all it took for him to conquer this. And we see that it all goes all the way up to the borders of India and all the way up to nearly to Italy. And we see that it's just a massive amount of land. This is much of the known world at that time. And we see that God used this in a mighty way as he foretold he would in verse number 5. Now the second thing we see about this is a notable horn. This is a reference to Alexander the Great, if, if you will. In verse number 5, he says, I was considering a he-goat came up from the west and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. When he was growing up, Alexander the Great, uh, his mother taught him that he was the descendant of Achilles and Hercules. He believed himself to be some sort of a demigod. And then, then his father was Philip of Macedon. And he was an incredibly gifted military man. And we're told that Alexander actually used to spend most of his time wondering, uh, wondering and worrying if he would conquer all of the land and there'd be nothing left for him to conquer. But one thing about Philip, he wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a believer, but he was an encourager to his son. Listen to this quote I found about what he said to his son. He said, Alexander, my son, seek out a kingdom worthy of yourself. Macedonia is too small for you. So obviously he had an inflated ego, but I see a dad here that really encouraged his kid. I was encouraged by that. And we see that Alexander's success was built, on, built into him from his parents. His mom believed he was a, some sort of a demigod, and his dad said, Listen, Macedonia is too small for you. Go conquer the world, son. When was the last, when was the last time we encouraged our kids like that? But let me just, let me just say that, that there is a third uh, prophecy here, and that was the ruin of the Medo-Persian Empire. 
Notice what he says in verse number 5. That In verse 7 he says, And I saw him come close into the realm, and he was moved with collar against him, and smote the realm, and brake his two horns. And so God said to Daniel that when this notable horn, this great king comes to power, he's going to come against the Persians and the Medes. And when Alexander decided to take the Medes and the Persians down, he came with 35,000 troops from the west, and he not only defeated the Persian army, but then the Bible says that uh, the Bible says in verse eight, and history records that they stomped them on the on the ground. Verse number eight, or bottom of seven. I'm sorry. It says stamped upon them, and there was none that could deliver the realm out of his hand. Listen, that was God fulfilled this prophecy once again. Again, so we, we have these three prophecies so far that God has demonstrated through history that has been revealed, that was revealed to Daniel, that's Daniel, that has been fulfilled through history. The fourth one is the death of this king. Verse number 8. Then uh, he, uh, the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And so this is the death of Alexander the Great. As he pictures here in verse 21 and 22, we see that he's revealing himself strong, that, that, that Alexander would, would perish at an early age. And we see this in history. Alexander the Great, though he conquered the whole world, as he entered into the coasts of India, his army rebelled and said, listen, we've been fighting for 12 years, we're done. Alexander went into a drunken and, and depressed mood and died at the young age of 32 or 33. 200 years before Alexander died, God described the details of his death. As Alexander swept over the civilized earth, he believed he was doing his work. What he didn't realize was that God was at work, and God was using him. Now, that's a, in, my, in my opinion, sometimes you look at men like Alexander the Great, you look at King Cyrus, you look at King Nebuchadnezzar, and you see these guys and you think, man, these are evil men. What is God doing in the midst of that? And then, of course, on this side, it's easy to see, isn't it? But if you're living in the midst of that and you're going through persecution and you're experiencing time of great turmoil in your life, it's not always easy to see that God is triumphant in the end. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. You see, when Alexander amassed all these kingdoms, let me just say that God was using Alexander. You see, because as he was building these kingdoms together, he, he was concerned about the many different cultures, the languages from all different places in the earth. And he said, listen, we've got to do something to bring this together as a nation or it's going to come apart. It won't stay together. And so he introduced a common language and he introduced common worship and other things like that and even Greek culture. That common language is known as Greek. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, the common language for all the trade routes, the common language for people was Greek. Guess what God wrote the New Testament in? It was Greek. God used Alexander the Great all those centuries prior to be able to prepare the way so that we could have the New Testament today. God was working and using, you know what's incredible is they could write it in the city of Jerusalem and then in the city of Rome they could read it because it was one language. And so they looked across there and they said, listen, this was God at work in this situation. You say, man, what a terrible tragedy that Alexander the Great conquered and he, and he did all these evil things. But let me just remind you that God was at work in that situation. 
And he taught all the people that he conquered this language and then that God used it in a great way. Listen, God was preparing the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. God was preparing the world for the dissemination of the gospel. Remember, God used King Cyrus, the Persian king, to rebuild the temple. God used Alexander the Great to create a common language so that the word of God could be distributed throughout the whole world. And God used the Romans as well. Let me just say God used the Romans as an instrument to bring salvation through the death of Christ. Now, they didn't save. Christ saves. But they were the ones who brought His death. So God used each of these situations. I want to look at one final prophecy here that was fulfilled, and then we'll, we'll uh, move forward uh, into some things. In verse number 8, we see there are four horns that come up after Alexander the Great, and this is the part of the prophecy that has to do with the four generals. And we talked about this, and this is the four horns. This is the map after Alexander the Great died. These four horns, they, uh, or these four generals, uh, they just, uh, broke up the country into basically four parts that, uh, that these different generals were able to take and become kings of and become rulers of these different areas in the kingdom. And so the kingdom was essentially divided and, the, and prophecy, and then there was prophesied that there would be a little horn that would come out of one of these kingdoms uh, that Alexander created. And so let's look at that very quickly. The little horn at this point in Daniel chapter 8 and verses 9 through 12. It says, and out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant Land. Now, the pleasant land is the, uh, the land of Jerusalem, and we recognize that that is uh, Israel there. And it says in verse 10, And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. This little horn is a foreshadow of something greater to come. At the death of Alexander, no heir could be found the country, the kingdom was divided among his four generals. And it was out of one of these kingdoms that a foreshadow of the Antichrist arose. In the books between Malachi and Matthew are what we call the Apocrypha. And I just want you to know they are not you know, scriptural, but we can look to them for some historical understanding. We don't hold to them as scripture, okay, and uh, as God-inspired scripture, okay? So I want to make that delineation there. There's also great uh, other historians from history like Josephus who also recorded some of these things for us and we can learn from what happened in history. And I'm going to share some of those things with you uh, that happened in history. There was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. His name uh, means literally Antiochus, God manifest. As you can guess, he was very arrogant. He felt he was God. He was diabolical. He wanted people to worship him. He could not conquer the entire world but he, because the Romans hindered his ability. And so he turned his fury on Jerusalem and on the Jews. He sacked the city. He destroyed 80,000 men. And then he sold another 40,000 into slavery. He was truly a wicked, wicked man. To kill the Jews was one thing. But he sought to kill their faith. Antiochus decided to substitute Greek worship in place for Jewish religion. And so he, he began to substitute the Jewish Feast of the Tabernacles, and he brought in the temple, of, uh, he brought into the temple the Feast of, of Bacchanalia. Uh, I cannot say this word. It was the worship of Bacchus. He was the god of pleasure and wine. He forbid the observance of the Sabbath, 
He found any copy of the Torah he could find and he burned it. Sounds like the Nazis, amen? Listen, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to, he wants to destroy the Word of God. And if he can't destroy it, he wants to deceive you. And so I want to encourage you, don't go to the Internet and just read anything you can. Instead, read the Word of God and trust the Spirit of God to teach you. But the Jews in the city were forbidden to practice anything Jewish-related under penalty of death. Even the rite of circumcision was banned. And there's many different historical stories and records that are really too barbaric to share from this platform. And I just say that he was a very wicked and vile man. As a matter of fact, he was so vile that Jews changed his name uh, to Antiochus uh, Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. Antiochus was a foreshadow of the coming Antichrist. In this man was the spirit of Antichrist. In John, uh, 1 John 4, 3, he says, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. John wrote, and he said, Listen, this spirit's here now, and let me just say that in 2020 it's still alive and well. As a symbol of what it was of the coming Antichrist will do, we see that he, uh, this Antiochus, he desecrated the temple, in the, uh, and we see that what he did was Antiochus took uh, a pig and he brought it into the holy of holies, and he slit the throat of the pig in this place, which was supposed to be the holiest place of all Jewry. And as he did it, he collected the blood and spread it around the temple, and he sprayed and desecrated the temple. What an incredible picture of what we read that happens in the book of Revelation when the Antichrist sits upon the throne in the midway point of the tribulation and he sets himself up as the, the Messiah. Let me tell you something. As we look at history, we see that God, uh, what, what is that saying? History repeats itself. And we see that this one day will be repeated in the person of the Antichrist. Daniel visualized all of this. He saw the madman. He saw the, the, the catastrophes. He taught, saw these tragedies that would, had arisen. He saw all of the things that, would, that were coming forth. And I think his clarity was even greater than ours could, could be as we read this. And I believe that God just made it so plain to him, the, the wickedness and the vileness of all that would happen. And it was so horrible that, that he just could not uh, hardly cope with all that he had seen. But I want to share with you that this... Just as Antiochus and Epiphanes, his time was limited, so will be the Antichrist's time. Matter of fact, the Bible says in verse number 11, Yea, he magnified, excuse me, verse 13, I'm sorry. Then when I heard one saint speaking to another and said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host, of, uh, host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand 300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Really, you know what they were asking? How long, God, can you let this go on? Will this endure for eternity? That's what Daniel and these others wanted to know. Will this go on forever? And God answered that with a specific number, 2,300 days. Did you know that from the time that Antiochus began to persecute and uh, the, uh, the Jews to the time of his death was approximately 2,300 days? God told Daniel that his days were numbered. 
that this man would not last forever. I want you to look in verse 23 with me because there is another one that's arising, another one that we must re, uh, realize, and we preached about him last week in, from chapter 7, this Antichrist, and he says this in verse 23, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are, full, are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Did you, did you catch that? And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also, he shall cause crafts to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and, and by peace shall destroy many what an incredible prophecy. You see that there is a coming Antichrist which will destroy. But I want you to know there is a coming deliverer. I want you to first point first to the deliverer of, uh, that points to Christ, the deliverer named Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but a different one. A Judas from history, a Judas who helped pave the way for temple worship to be reinstituted. You see, because during the days of those terrible persecution of Antiochus, there was a man, an old elderly priest named Mattathias. And let me just say, I'm thankful for people who are willing to stand, no matter their age, for truth and righteousness. And this old priest who lived outside of town of Jerusalem, he, he uh, as the patriarch he stood and presided over worship. And as he was there one day, an emissary from Antiochus came to the place where he lived. And he commanded the people to bow down before the altar of Jupiter and worship this Greek god. And Mattathias was so incensed over this order that he saw when a Jew came to worship, he destroyed the Jew and then he destroyed the officer. And this began the Maccabean revolt. When that old priest died, his son his son picked up the torch of liberty and Judas Maccabeus carried it forth until there was liberty to worship in the temple once again. An incredible, incredible story of bravery that paved the way for Caiaphas even to sit in the high priest's seat during Christ's time. Let me just share this with you. Judas went back to cleanse the temple in 144 B.C., and, the, and the, one of the first things he wanted to do was to light the lamps. The lamps had gone out, and he desired that, that this be lit once again, and according to uh, tradition, the ceremony would consecrate uh, eight days to finish up, and, but he only had one cruise of oil, and that oil wouldn't last that time. But this, history teaches us through this story that a small amount of oil lasted for the entire eight days, and the people of, of uh, Jewry still continue to, uh, to celebrate through the Feast of Reconstruction and Dedication. They call it the Feast of Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights, Festival of Lights. As we look at this, I want to just remind you that on the first day of Hanukkah, Jews will light a candle on the second day of the second candle until they've lit all eight candles. And it is a sign of victory and deliverance. And this goes all the way back to what Daniel saw and prophesied. There was a Jew who was behind the Iron Curtain and he was being persecuted greatly. And his captors asked him, he said, what do you think will happen to you and your people if we continue to persecute you? And the Jew just simply replied, oh, we'll have another feast. He said, Pharaoh tried to destroy us and the result was a Passover. Haman tried to destroy us and there was the Feast of Purim. Antiochus tried to destroy us and the result was the Feast of Dedication. So just try to destroy us and we'll start another feast. 
You know, we've looked at all of these vast segments of history from the leadership of Alexander who demonstrates the coming power of the Antichrist and the vileness of Antiochus who really, he epitomizes the cruelty of the Antichrist. And neither one of them really, they pale in comparison to the Antichrist himself. But we see that just as Judas was a deliverer for the Jews then, there's a great deliverer coming for us. Let me just share with you what is described by the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He says, Whoso opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see, the Antichrist describes his cruelty and masks it with peace and promises of peace. And when people are feeling secure, he will begin his destruction, but his end will come. Uh, will come. Look in verse number 25 with me once again. As he shares about this, he says, And through his policy also shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Here's the glorious news. Jesus wins. Man, that's, the, that's the cut and the dry of it. And sometimes we get in the middle of our, our, our situations and we think, man, God, how are you at work? And, and what is all is going on? Let me just remind you, it took centuries before Daniel saw the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it may take some time, but we're going to see the end of the book is right. And the king is still the king. And he still sits on the throne. And he is still victorious today. So ch church, let me just remind you today. This is a glorious thing for us to re be reminded of. And I want to go all the way to the end of this chapter as we capture Daniel's response to what had happened. First off, it says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Listen, this, this vision that he was given literally caused him to become sick. He was full of grief. And, you know, there are times where, where we look at a situation or a circumstance and we're grieving over this circumstance and we're grieving over this loss and maybe, we're, maybe you're grieving over elections. I don't know, but this is what I know is sometimes we look at these situations and we think, God, where are you in the midst of all of this? Even Job. There was times where he struggled. God, where are you in all of this tragedy in my life? But I'm reminded that even in Job's situation, God showed up and demonstrated himself mighty. Amen. Let me share with you what Daniel did. He says, I rose up and did the king's business. Did you catch that? He said, yes, I grieve. Yes, this saddens my heart. Yes, there are times where maybe I feel fearful or overwhelmed, but this is what I did. I rose up and I served the King of Kings. I, I chose instead to continue forward and say, God, no matter what may come, no matter how difficult it may be, God, I choose to serve you. I choose to be faithful to you. And church, there is a world right now that is in need of your voice. There is a world right now in need of the good news of the gospel of salvation that provides hope and salvation for 
every man, woman, and child if they will simply believe. And this is what he says. Will you rise up and do the king's business? Will you rise up today and say, listen, in a couple of weeks we'll celebrate Thanksgiving. And as we celebrate Thanksgiving, families will be together. And, and Christmas is just around the corner. Families will be together. And we'll have the opportunity to share Christ with our families. You may come from a lost family. But have you shared Christ with them? You may have lost co-workers and friends. Have you shared Christ with them? Because this is the reality. Without Christ, the future for them is doomed. Without Christ, the future is certain, and that is utter destruction. Revelation chapter 20 spells it out uh, incredibly horribly for us as he says that they will be cast into the lake of fire where they will spend an eternity. Do we care? Daniel He was so burdened over what he saw. He was burdened by all that he had seen. But he says, I rose up and I did the king's commandment.